uh, I've been spending a lot of time doing something that I really don't enjoy doing very much at all, and that is assembling furniture. Anyone relate to that? Last month, I moved, and so I've been in the process of getting settled into a new place, and part of that has meant uh, assembling a lot of like nightstands and side tables and that kind of thing. And a few weeks ago, I finally tackled um, one of the biggest boxes that was delivered to my doorstep by the wonderful people at Antelicom, and that was uh, my TV stand. And so one evening, I got home, and I decided that I was going to like stay up as late as it took me to get this thing put together. And I opened up the box, and I laid out all of the pieces, and uh, threw on some Netflix, and I started to work away at it. And I'm the kind of person who's pretty committed to following instructions with these kinds of things, not because I enjoy following instructions, but because like, I recognize my own limitations. Okay, like I'm not a very handy person, and so I know that those little booklets with the confusing diagrams are really the only hope I actually have at getting anything put together properly. And so it can be a bit of a journey for me. You know, it takes me a little bit of time, and I was working away at it and working away at it, uh, but finally, just before 1 a.m., I got this thing put together, and I put my TV up on it, and I like stood back and looked at it, and it was beautiful. It was like a masterpiece, you know? In that moment, I couldn't have been more proud of what I'd put together with my own blood and sweat and tears and like a little Allen key. And so I thought, you know, just to kind of finish strong before going to bed, that I would like center this thing, you know, on the wall. And so I, uh, I, I lifted it up, I started to drag it over. And as I did that, I heard like, an unsettling crunching noise. And I felt this thing like collapse underneath me. And all of a sudden I was like clinging to my TV for dear life. And as this uh, TV stand kind of like settled over on an angle and uh, the base of it, the whole side kind of collapsed underneath of it. And as I investigated what had happened, it quickly became clear that I had missed a step Okay, there was a very important piece of hardware, apparently, that was missing, that really mattered to keep this thing intact. And as great as things looked when I finished putting it together, it was really just a matter of time before the whole thing fell apart, because something very important was missing. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series from the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's letters. Uh, It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church uh, in a place called Corinth. And in this letter, Paul's dealing with all of these messy issues that have come to the surface in this uh, church community. Like if you're familiar with the book of Corinthians, you know, right? It's like one of those ones where he's got a lot, there's a lot of trouble going on. There's a lot of stuff he's got to deal with, with this church. And at the heart of almost every issue that Paul is addressing in this letter, there's like this one underlying issue. Something very important is missing in this church community. Something very important missing in how these Christians are acting and interacting with one another that has led to all kinds of conflict 
and division and pride within their church. And the thing that was missing was love, or at least the kind of love that God calls us to as followers of Jesus. And this is clear right from the beginning of the letter. In chapter one, Paul talks about these divisions that have broken out within the church. Different groups of people have aligned themselves with different leaders, and some of them have, have aligned themselves with Apollos, some of them have, have aligned themselves with, uh, with Paul, with Cephas. They picked the leader that they liked the most, Maybe they were drawn to their theology or to their personality, and they started dividing up into these different camps. And these different camps argued with each other, and they felt that they were better than everybody else. If they had the internet at this time, you can be sure that these people would have been writing blog posts about each other and tweeting mean things about each other. And so... Paul calls out the Corinthian church for this, and he says there shouldn't be any divisions among them because their identity isn't found in Paul or in Apollos or in Cephas. Their identity is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And in Christ, they're united. They're united in him. And then Paul goes on to talk about the way that this church is practicing communion, and the way that he does it, the way he corrects them is pretty intense. If you look at it, it's chapter eleven, seventeen. He says this. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Ouch. Right? What is going on when they're taking the Lord's Supper in Corinth? Well, when they celebrated communion in the early church, they didn't have those little plastic cup things, right, with the wafers. That's not how they did it. They actually, like, shared a full meal with one another. And when the Corinthian church gathered together for this practice, the rich people were stuffing their faces, and they were drinking so much that they were getting drunk, and other people went home with empty stomachs. The people left hungry. They were divided by social status. And this was an honor and shame-based society. And so in these situations, the poor would have left feeling humiliated. And so Paul jumps in again and he corrects them. And he says, you know, when they, when they gather together to celebrate communion, they're actually celebrating the very reality that in Christ there are no longer divisions between them. Right, as they share in the blood and the body of Christ, they're celebrating the reality that they're united in him. And everybody needs to be included and honored and cared for when they celebrate this practice together. And then in chapter 12, Paul goes on to address the way that the Corinthians are using their spiritual gifts when they gathered together in worship. Now, the Corinthians were a charismatic bunch, Okay, and they placed a high value on having these powerful, supernatural experiences during their worship gatherings. They especially uh, celebrated speaking in tongues. And so their gatherings could become very chaotic. There were people speaking in languages that others couldn't understand, and so they couldn't benefit from what was being said. And the more supernatural the experience seemed to be, the more 
pride people had about their spiritual status. They came to see these charismatic expressions of worship as badges of spiritual maturity. And it's kind of like this hierarchy started to develop about what gifts people had and how they used them uh, when they gathered together. And so once again, there's pride, there's division, there's people who are in, and there's people who are out. And so once again, Paul steps in and he corrects them and he uses this beautiful metaphor of the human body. Maybe some of you are familiar with this passage in 1 Corinthians 12. We all live in these bodies that are made up of different parts that need to work together in order for us uh, to do what we're made to do, right? And in order for us to be healthy. Every body part that we have, our fingers, our toes, our kidneys, right? They all have a different function to play. And in the same way, Paul says, each of us brings unique gifts and our unique personalities, our unique identities to the body of Christ. And rather than competing with each other, rather than comparing ourselves to one another, God wants us to be who he made us to be and to use our gifts to build up the entire body. And Paul's going to go on to, to come back to this topic in chapter 14, and he's going to give them some, some very specific instructions about what their worship uh, gatherings should look like. But before he does that, he kind of sets the topic aside for a moment to talk about something that's missing, that's causing this whole situation to fall apart. He, he changes the topic in a sense, but he's not, this isn't like a squirrel moment. He's not just distracted and, and jumping to another topic. The reality is that um, he's about to talk about love, and love is that one thing that's missing. It's the corrective that's going to help the, uh, the Corinthians think properly about their spiritual gifts. And it's the corrective for all of the conflict and division that they've been dealing with within their church community. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up with me to 1 Corinthians 13. If you've been to more than a few weddings in your lifetime, there's a good chance that you have heard this passage read as a way of reflecting on love and what it looks like when it's lived out. It's a beautiful passage. But as we look at the passage now and throughout the series, it's important for us to remember that Paul isn't officiating a wedding here, okay? It's beautiful to use as at a wedding to, to reflect on love, but that's not specifically what Paul's looking at here. Paul is offering these words to a divided church. He's writing these words to a community that's riddled with conflict and pride, where there's an us and there's a them. He's writing these words to a community where there isn't a lot of mutual respect, where people are more worried about themselves than they are about the people around them or the good of the community. Does that sound familiar at all? We are living in an incredibly polarized world, right? Like, we know this. We all know this. It doesn't take much scrolling through uh, the news headlines to see that we are living in divided times. And sadly, often things aren't that much different in the church. 
Sometimes they can even be worse, right, in the church. The church is divided today as it's ever been. It can be tempting to say it's more divided than it's ever been, right? Sometimes we fall into that. But the truth is, there have been a lot of uh, intense schisms back in the day as well. But we're, more, we're just as divided as we have ever been. And yet, Jesus says in John 13, verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. What is it? If you're right? If you behave really well? No, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another, right? And so as disheartening as some of the division that we're living through can feel, and as difficult as it can be to imagine how we might overcome some of our differences and move forward in a new way, this passage opens up the door for an incredible amount of hope because it shows us a way forward into unity and transformation, as we embrace the way of love that Jesus calls us to. So 1 Corinthians 13, this morning we're going to look at the first uh, three verses. Paul says, If I speak in the tongue of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Now in Paul's time, uh, people placed a really high value on rhetoric, on the skill of oral persuasion. This was like a real art form at the time. And of course, in this context, the Corinthians have really been priding themselves on their ability to speak in tongues. And so this is where Paul starts, by addressing our ability to use language. And he says, it doesn't matter how eloquent or convincing of a speaker you might be, It doesn't matter whether you can speak in the tongues of angels. If you don't have love, if love isn't the thing that's driving you and motivating your words, it's like you're standing there just smashing metal together. Every time I I, uh, read this passage, I think about my nephew, Caleb, when I was um, writing my my, uh, thesis for my master's, he he was taking drum lessons. He just started drum lessons. And so he was over and he's like in the living room with pots and pans, just working on his percussion ability. And I was trying to write my paper and I'm just like, you know, not wanting to, t- to break his spirit. So like, good job, buddy. But it doesn't sound good, does it? When people are like smashing metal together. You can be the best preacher in the world. You can write the most compelling articles on the internet. You can have, be the most persuasive person to have ever walked the earth and win every argument that you ever find yourself in. But if it doesn't come from a place of love, it's just loud, obnoxious noise. Okay, Paul's words, not mine. Verse two. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Did you catch that? This is a pretty big deal, what Paul is saying. The gift of prophecy is like speaking on behalf of God. Paul says you can speak God's words with power, 
You can understand the deepest mysteries of the gospel. You can know everything there is to know. You can have insights into truths that no one else has insight into. You can have the deepest and most steady faith. You can have faith that changes things. But if you don't have love, if love isn't the thing that's motivating you, if it's not the force behind all of it, Paul says it counts for nothing. Not a little, not, yeah, it gets in the way. It's like, if it doesn't have love, he says it counts for nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain everything. Paul says we could give away all of our money, all of our resources to the poor. We could spend all of our time volunteering for organizations that help those in need. We could sacrifice everything we have. We could even give up our lives as martyrs. But if we don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. It's worthless. In the message translation, Eugene Peterson wraps up this section like this. He says, no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. How would things change in the church if we really believed that? How would things change if love was the driving force behind and the defining feature of every single thing that we did? It would change the world. It would change the world. But the truth is that we struggle with the same kinds of things that the Corinthians struggled with, don't we? As human beings, we all have a need to belong. We're created with this need to connect. We all want to feel like we have a sense that we belong to a group of people. And so we form groups around things like shared values, shared interests, shared beliefs, And then we make rules about who's in and who's out. And then we police the boundaries to make sure that the people who are on the outside know that they're on the outside. This shows up all over the place, right? It shows up in politics, right? Quite a lot. Shows up in politics. But it also shows up like with music interests. Who here likes country music? There's some. Who here hates country music? It's like a lot of sheepish (laughs) hand raising. You guys can settle that in the parking lot after the service. Just kidding. We're uh, pacifists. Um, (laughs) It shows shows up when we align ourselves with different sports teams, right? Like Maple Leafs versus some other hockey team. I'm not really, I don't know the hockey teams. Um, And it shows up in more serious ways. Divisions between the rich and the poor. It shows up in racial division and injustice. In the 1960s, there was a teacher named uh, Jane Elliott, and she wanted to help her students understand racism after the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And so she she did a little exercise with them. Uh, Maybe some of you have heard from this. If you study like social psychology, this is one of the most, the first things that you talk about. Uh, She told her her students that brown-eyed children were better than blue-eyed children. Now, this is unbelievable. Like, we guess this would not happen today. <laughs> like, did anyone grow up in the 60s? <laughs> like, 
are you okay? <laughs> like, you can stop by the hub for a participation ribbon after the service. <laughs> anyway, so she told the, the brown-eyed children that they, were, that they were better than the blue-eyed children, and she said that brown eyes were linked to higher intelligence. So she gave them a reason. She's like, this is legit. Like, brown-eyed kids are better. And uh, things started to change in the classroom. All of a sudden, the brown-eyed children started to bully the kids that had blue eyes. Right? They became arrogant. They were bossy. And it trickled into their performance, too. They were confident. And so they ended up doing better in, in uh, math and reading and their schoolwork. And the blue-eyed children became really timid, and they started performing more poorly uh, at school and, and on their math and in their reading. And then don't worry, like the next week, she, switched, she turned the tables, and thankfully kids are like, they're pretty gullible, right? So they went along with this, and suddenly the, the blue-eyed kids became the bullies. Um, and there's a lot more to that, to that study that you can look at. They weren't quite as mean because they'd experienced what it felt like to be bullied, and so it kind of changed when, when she turned the tables. But eventually, she explained to them the point. So, you know, they, none of them were left feeling horrible about themselves. Eventually, she explained to them that she was just showing them what racism was all about. And here's the point. Because we have this deep need for belonging, we can form in-groups and out-groups over even the most trivial things and then look down on people who aren't like us. As human beings, we all want to belong, and we have this drive to prove that we have value, that we matter, that we're worthy of love. And so we're always trying to prove that we're smart enough, that we're strong enough or cool enough or whatever else it might be that makes us feel important and accepted. And the thing is that the gospel tells us that we do belong that God has brought us into his family, that we belong with him and his people. And that is where we're designed to find our sense of belonging. And in Christ, there are no divisions. Any of the walls that once separated us have been torn down in Christ. And the gospel tells us that we don't need to run around trying to prove that we have value because we were created in the image of God. We just talked about that, right? When we're looking at Genesis. We're created in God's image. And Jesus came into the world and went to the cross because of his incredible love for us. So we're perfectly loved and valued in Christ. We don't need to strive for it or try to prove it anymore. But when we're not anchored in that reality, that drive to belong and that drive to prove that we have value starts to trickle into the church. And it can lead to conflict and competition. And ultimately, it's like an inability to give and receive love. But Paul says there is a different way. In the kingdom of God, everything starts with love. God gave us all unique abilities and he wants us to use them, but we don't use them to make ourselves feel important or to make ourselves look good or fit in. We use them for the good of others. In the kingdom of God, everything starts with love or it all falls apart. Now, one of the problems with the, the word love is that it's a very clunky word in the English language. We use the word love for all kinds of things, right? 
I love my family, I love my church, I love my friends, and like I love pizza. But the way that I love my family is very different from the way that I love pizza. And when I say I love pizza, what I'm really saying is that I want to eat it. Right? Like I don't carry pizza around and make sure it's okay and like tend to its, its needs. If you do, let's <laughs> talk about that. But love means all kinds of things. And we also bring all kinds of baggage when we talk about love because of how it's understood and lived out in our culture. Right? For starters, we talk about love like it's a feeling. Right? We talk about love like it's a feeling because we all grew up watching Disney movies. Because of how it's depicted in the media that we consume every day. Love is something that you can fall into. You can fall out of, right? It's like butterflies. It's warm fuzzies. But biblical love isn't just a feeling. That's part of it sometimes. Okay, feelings are a gift from God. He gave them to us. They're part of what it means to be human. But we all know that feelings come and go. Right? Feelings are really just chemicals that are like swishing around in our brains or something. I don't know. It's about chemicals in the brains. And they react to our environment. And so the truth is that I could feel all kinds of love for somebody on Tuesday, but then have a really rough sleep on Tuesday night. And by Wednesday, everything that that person says is annoying to me. Have you ever experienced that? Love is something bigger and more enduring than our feelings. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. We also uh, treat love like it's a commodity. We use love like money. In his book, Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller talks about the metaphors that we use to describe relationships and just how many of them are financial metaphors. We value people, we invest in people, we make value judgments about whether people are worth our time and our attention. Sometimes we talk about relationships being bankrupt. Even the way we talk about relationships shows how prone we are to thinking about them in the same way that we think about money. And we give out love a lot of the times like we're on a really tight budget. You know? If somebody has something to offer us, whether that's popularity or affection or whether they tell really funny jokes and keep us entertained, we feel like they have value and we're willing to give them our love. But when people disagree with us or they don't have a lot to offer us or they're not doing the things we want them to do, We withhold our love from them. And we're so used to operating this way that that it too, it seeps into the church. And sometimes we even spiritualize it, right? And convince ourselves that God values the same kinds of people that we value. But it couldn't be any further from the way we see love described in scripture. Specifically, the love that God has for us and the love that he calls us to have for him and for other people. In the Greek language, uh, love isn't quite as clunky of a word as it is in English. In the Greek language, which most of the New Testament is written, there are different words to describe different kinds of love. For example, the word phileo talks about 
love that exists within friendship. The word eros talks about like passionate love, like PG-13, like, you know, romantic, passionate love. And the word that's used in this passage is the word agape. Some of you have probably heard this word before. And agape isn't a kind of love that you can just like accidentally fall into and fall out of. It's not a love that's given out according to calculations about who deserves what. Agape is self-giving love. It's a love that wants and works for the best of others regardless of whether or not they deserve it in any given moment. It's a love that affirms the inherent worth of every human as somebody who's made in the image of God. And it's a free gift with no strings attached. 1 John 4.16 tells us that God is love. God is love. Love is the essence of who God is. And so when we want to know what real love looks like, when we're kind of confused because of the different ways that it gets skewed in our culture, we can look to Jesus who lived out love perfectly. And Jesus did some amazing things when he walked the surface of this earth. But he was never worried about making himself look good or proving to anybody that he was better than anybody else. He was always motivated by love. He hung out with people that everyone else pushed to the margins. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, people who were outcast in his society. He wasn't worried about his own popularity. He was motivated by love. Before he went to the cross, Jesus uh, shared a final meal with his disciples. And as they, they came in, he He stepped into the position of a slave. He did the job that nobody wanted to do, that everyone looked down on. And he got onto his knees and he washed his disciples' feet as an act of love and service. Who was in the room? Judas. Jesus washed the feet of the person that he knew was about to betray him. Right? His love went that far. He wasn't worried about looking important. He wasn't worried about putting people in their place. He was motivated by love. And then he went to the cross and he gave up his life in the most shameful way possible in this culture so that he could free us from sin and so we could be reconciled to God and have a restored relationship with him. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. Jesus showed us in the most powerful way imaginable what love looks like. And it's about being willing to make sacrifices and set aside our own desires and agendas for the sake of others. And throughout this series, we're going to do a deep dive into some of the character qualities that Paul goes on to say that people who embody the agape love of God uh, live in. 
Things like patience, things like kindness. Our world could use a little bit more patience these days, couldn't it? Our world could use a little bit more kindness. And I'm really excited because I believe that if the church can, can start to live into this, however imperfectly, that the church will change the world. I have a nephew uh, named Ethan, who's six years old, and Ethan's really into superheroes and uh, the different powers that he has. Like, he's really worried about being powerful, right? He's six. And every time he starts talking about superheroes and, and the different abilities that they have and just how, like, powerful and impressive these abilities are, I always say to him, you know, Ethan, love is actually the most powerful thing in the world, Right, superheroes are cool, but love is the most powerful thing in the world. And every time he argues with me, he says, no, superheroes are more powerful, right? And so I try to give him these little mini sermons about how like love changes people from the inside out, transforms our hearts. Love can make mean people kind, things that he's super interested in at six years old. Um, but for the most part, it's been a losing battle, right? I'm not really winning this kid over yet to the nonviolent ways of Jesus, but we're working on it. Uh, then, then a few weeks ago, a little while ago, I was pulling out of the driveway and uh, Ethan starts like banging on the window, telling me not to go. And then he runs out to the door and he's like, Auntie Tamil. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I'm trying to get out of the door to go to work. He's like, I know what your superpower is. I'm like, what is it? And he's like, love. I'm like, finally, right? He heard it. Love is the most powerful thing in the world not our love. The kind of love that we're called to isn't a love that we can conjure up within ourselves. It's a love that we receive freely as a gift from the God who is love, and then we let overflow to the people around us. Now, in a world that's filled with so much conflict and division, it can feel overwhelming to think about how to even begin to make a difference or move things in a new direction. I've had these conversations with a lot of people lately. It just sometimes just feels like I don't even know where to start right now. But one of the verses that's been giving me an incredible amount of hope lately is Matthew 13, verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts out very small and unassuming, and then it grows into something bigger than we could ever imagine. And it's those tiny, seemingly insignificant acts of love where we're patient with somebody who's getting on our nerves, where we show kindness to somebody instead of being critical. It's those seemingly insignificant acts of love that actually make all of the difference as God uses them to change us and others and our communities. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up to the front. Uh, this morning, we're going to close with a practice called breath prayer. And breath prayer is an ancient practice. It's really simple. It just in involves praying a simple prayer uh, or a piece of scripture along with our breathing. And it's a powerful practice because it, it anchors us in truth. And it's also just a really simple way to stay connected uh, with God throughout the day as we kind of recite prayers as we breathe. So this morning, we're going to close with a prayer called the Beloved Prayer. Um, some of you may have practiced this before, but it's really just a way of reminding ourselves 
who God says we are. That you are the beloved of God. And as you open yourself up to receive God's love, let that shape the way you live and understand yourself, that's when when we're then free to let God's love flow out of us and extend to others. And so I'll invite you now to just kind of center yourself in God's presence. You can relax your shoulders, get comfortable. And just take a deep breath in. Take a breath out. And as you breathe in, breathe in the word be. As you breathe in the word be, you're pushing against that tendency for us to focus on what we do. Just be who God made you to be. Be, exist in God's presence. And as you breathe out, breathe out the word love. And let yourself sense God's love for you. Be loved. And just go through that a few times on your own. Now we're going to change the prayer just a tiny little bit to focus on the reality that as we receive God's love, he transforms us to become love. So breathe in, be. As you breathe out, breathe the word love. Be love. God, we thank you that you are love. That you love us with love that's bigger than we can imagine, with this agape love unlike anything uh, that we've ever experienced here on earth. And God, I pray that you would help us to open up our hearts to receive that love because God, that's where it all starts. We can't do this on our own. So where there's been anything getting in the way in our lives of our ability to receive your love, God, I pray that you would clear that away. That you would give us a new sense of your grace, your hope, your peace, your freedom. And God, I pray that you would transform each of us and us as a community of people representing you in our community to become people who represent your love who become love as we follow you. God, we love you. We trust you. We thank you, God, that we get to be a part of what you're doing in this world. God, it's a broken world that we're living in, but because of you, there's hope. There's possibilities of newness. God, there's new life.
God, help us to hold on to that, to live it in your name. Amen.